Did you ever have to play the the acting school game where if you count down from 20 and if and if more than one person says the same number at the same time, you have to start back over? Yeah, except we had to count from 1 to 100. Yeah, see, this is why we have anxiety now. There's no other reason. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's my excuse? Because I went to school for computer science. <laughs> That's your excuse. That's your excuse. <laughs> I'm just going to start off right at the top and say some of y'all might recognize, some of y'all might not. That third voice that we have going on today is Kaylee Bray. Um, That means that other voice is Tracy Harrison and I'm Rowan Hall. Cool. Now we know who everyone is. (laughs) (laughs) Great job. Thank you so much. Also, this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. But more importantly, perhaps, than all of that, the three of us have a group text now. Oh, see, I was going to save that for my something good at the end of the episode, and you've stolen that from me, and now I don't know how to feel about it. I hate it when Tracy does that to me, so I am so sorry. It's okay. I'm actually very lucky to have many good things happening in my life right now, so I'm sure I will pick something else. The confusion on Rowan's face is- so good. Speaks volumes. Can you go into visceral detail about what this, like, multiple good things- is like what what do you mean i don't understand <laughs> i i am still getting used to it frankly so <laughs> ask me later when i have adjusted to the fact that things are going well and now that of course i'm openly admitting it i'm superstitiously expecting something to go wrong no 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 i refuse <laughs> y'all the other i'm starting to believe in putting energy out in the world the other day we were going to go to a place outdoors with friends, and the weather was predicted to be cold and raining. Mm-hmm. And my sister looked me dead in the eye and said, it's not. It's going to be lovely that day. It was lovely that day. She just looked the universe in the eye and commanded it to obey her will. Which sister was this? Jamie, my twin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jamie's got that thing, though. She really does. It's she just... Like- Put it into the world. That's it's amazing. a mix of the audacity and also the respect. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I did one of the spookier things that I've ever done recently. Ooh, that's a high bar. One of the spookier things that I've done this week. So <laughs> Okay. Lower bar. Okay, there we go. You know, we're going out into the world now. We have to interact with people that are strangers. And mm-hmm. I have this evil eye necklace that my mother gave me she found it she antiqued it for me she's so awesome and i want strangers to be nice to me so i took this necklace from my mother and i just dipped it in a bunch of moon water from the last super moon that we had and i just went everyone's gonna be nice to me (laughs) that's all i said and i've been wearing it and i have to say i had an interaction where someone started out aggressive and i just waited And I didn't do anything, and their tone changed. And I'm not saying it's the necklace or my super awesome witchiness, but I'm not not saying it. Yeah. I believe in it. I believe in it enough for the both of us. That's a good strategy. I might steal it. It's, you know, it's the power of positive thinking or shiny rocks, like whatever you want to call it. Also, plus fashion. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sweet spot. That's heaven. Yeah. That's where it is. Witchy stuff plus fashion. 
<laughs> I say wearing the sweatpants I slept in. <laughs> You're safe. You're safe. I was on your Pinterest board. Uh, looking up ways I should be dressing last night at 2 a.m. So you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> having a very well-tailored Pinterest board is different than having a fashion sense in real life. Is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I stand corrected, everyone. <laughs> I can already feel it. This is going to be the episode where someone writes in and says, you know, like, ugh, it's a bunch of women having fun and laughing in a podcast. This is going to be the one. Okay. I'm so excited. <laughs> I hope so. I will I will I will send that person my home address so they can say that to my face and then I will introduce them to my sword collection. Which is very <laughs> impressive and behind her right now in the video call. Our <laughs> listeners cannot see it, but I am so extremely envious because I only have two swords and I see at least 9 I have one, yes. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yes, and then we've got the two. Practice. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I have a lot. You know, I have some very specific hobbies that I have just decided to <laughs> really lean into, especially last year, and I have no regrets. No, nor should last you. Last year was the year of just leaning in to the things. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, Tracy, you don't know this. The other day, Kaylee gave me a knife in exchange for a quarter. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you can't just give a friend a knife. It's I, th There's a superstition about that. You can't give a friend a knife? I, so I didn't realize that this wasn't like a common knowledge thing. This might be like a Southerner thing. Um, I don't know where I got it, uh, but... You can't just give a friend a knife because superstition says then uh, it's it's a problem for the friendship. It'll end up in your back. So if but if you sell someone a knife, so you just exchange like a penny and then so you can give it to somebody. But then, you know, you just ask for like a, a coin and then it there then it's transaction and it's a safe transaction. So you can still give someone a gift, but you like counteract the superstition. I am trying to think so hard through all of the friendships I've had and to whomst I have given knives slash received them. Right. I can't stop thinking about the fact, like, what if I hadn't had coins in the bottom of my bag? And also, it was very bold of Kaylee to go, here is perhaps the weapon of my demise. Please have a coin in exchange. <laughs> May I it's, please have a coin? So far, it's worked okay for me. Uh, <laughs> there's usually a bar I've been bartered with with a cookie before too I was like oh I'll be fine probably I got a cookie instead of a coin I'm basically a fairy <laughs> <laughs> alright I think that's our moment this basically a fairy Kaylee Bray has deigned to join us on the podcast mm -hmm. she is actually going to teach us about a story that I don't know very much about. I don't know, no, Tracy. No, I very confidently said it was a completely different story. Amazing. When I heard what it was. I oh, very confidently great. thought it was a uh, – when we get to what the story is. Oh, it's in the title. People know. I was very confident it was Blackbeard mm. from the North Carolinas. I was like, yeah, I know all about him. Like, that's definitely – and then I was <laughs> – I thought for an extra second. I was like, no. No, that's not it at all. 
But before we dive into the story this week, we want to let you know there's a few ways you can support our show. You can do it by buying merch, joining us on Patreon, leaving a review, or you can just tell your dog about our show. But no matter what you do, we appreciate you and your dog. That was a good one. I love dogs, man. Same. And a huge thank you to our new Patreon patrons, Emily R., Brad D., Lucy G and Bob, thank you all so much for supporting Willie and Fable and making it possible for us to have cool guests like Kaylee and tell stories every week. Yes, we really appreciate the opportunity to get to know all of our patrons. We love learning about the stories you want to hear, and we are so glad that you have joined our what is legally not a cult. Thank you so much. And of course, we have a spring sponsor. It's Greenleaf Geek Dice. And today we have one of our favorite dungeon masters in all the mm-hmm. world on our show. So we get to ask D&D questions. I love talking about Dungeons and Dragons. You just said <laughs> I was one of your favorite dungeon masters and now I'm all squiggly. <laughs> there is nothing better than getting a DM to be all squiggly. It is so difficult. And I love it. So, Kaylee, our question for you is, what is just one of your, I'm sure many, favorite DM moments? Oh, man, there are so many. I think there's just all of my favorite DM moments uh, are the moments where I have an idea and I start to go down a direction and one of my players is like, oh, is it like this? Or, hey, what about this? And I'm like, that is the best idea I've ever heard. It's so much better than anything I ever could have come up with. Yes, (laughs) that i can't remember rowan you've done something like that for me recently where it's like hey can i do this thing and i'm like that's the most brilliant thing i've ever heard yeah absolutely you can do this thing (laughs) i don't care what the rules say kaylee consistently lets me take the verbiage of a spell and use that spell for absolutely not what the rule book says it is used for i love that Beyond cool of you, Kaylee. I uh, makes me think more as I'm going. It makes me try to kind of push my character in a really good way. It lets you be so much more creative as a player. Yeah, yeah, and especially well for anyone who doesn't know, Kaylee is my DM for Damsel's Dice and Everything Nice, which is our weekly Saturday stream on Pixel Circus on Twitch, and. Way, way back before this show existed, Kaylee came to me and said, you know, I'm going to make a show where the princesses save themselves. <laughs> Which I love that. Uh, I wish I had that when I was a kid. Like, that is the kind of thing that was so needed, I think, for me as an adult. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm very – I get to experience a lot of good Kaylee DM moments, not the least of which the one that sticks in my head so much is the kitchen sink moment. Oh, I was thinking about that one too. Can you describe it? Because my brain was just going, oh, my God, oh, my God, the whole time. Yeah. uh, So we have a a lovely friend of ours um, from the Valley Folk uh, on YouTube who – was kind enough to guest. We have a lot of guests on damsels that just come on and play other fun Disney characters. And he chose Bing Bong from Inside Out. <laughs> and uh, Steve Zaragoza, who's our wonderful guest, he 
he's played Dungeons and Dragons and, and role playing games like that a handful of times and was nerve a little nervous, I think, about about jumping on with a bunch of people who'd been playing for a while. But those are the kinds of players that I love. Uh, I'm right. <laughs> I love being the new player DM because someone will just have an idea. And because they don't have all of these preconceived notions about what Dungeons and Dragons has to be, it just becomes a much more interesting, creative game. And Steve is such a creative human that he was just like, I have a bag of whole, like, like Bing Bong just has stuff to bring joy. And so in the middle of a battle, he's like, I'm going to pull out of my bag and I'm going to pull out a literal kitchen sink and throw <laughs> it at our enemies. And I was like, yeah, you 100% do that. That's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I so if you guys ever jump on and watch the Damsels and Dice stream on Saturdays on Pixel Circus, you will often see me in the chats and I missed whatever episode that was and have been wondering why people to this day keep talking about Bing Bong and the kitchen sink in the chat. <laughs> Cause he was so convinced that he wasn't gonna be allowed to do it. He was like, Oh, I can't do this. I'm like, no, say it. Say it. Say it. It's <laughs> say gonna be worse. brilliant. I can tell. I can smell it. And he's like, Yeah, I'm just gonna do this. It's like, yeah, you 100 percent do that. Give me a second while I just decide what the stats of a kitchen sink are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. One of the best parts about having Kaylee as a DM for me is that I can know with some confidence that she will not kill off my character <laughs> if I'm doing something <laughs> ridiculous. So I get to play with the trust as a player that I can just make ridiculous choices and at least I'm not going to just end up as like a smear on the floor. <laughs> I never punish I never punish players for pushing the limits and exploring things in creative ways. I'm never going to punish somebody for that because I think that that's how games get better. And that's how I get better as a DM. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. So I'm anyway, I'm constantly texting Kaylee about the rules because I want the Kaylee version of the rules before I mm -hmm. want other versions of the rules. And I like, you know, I know both. And I, right. I try also, especially on the show, to explain both to be like, OK, so this these are the rules as written and this is what I am doing to them. Because I'm in charge. <laughs> but, you know, I am inspired by this structure to then break it and and make something that is more suited to the people that are in the room with me. So clearly, Kaylee is the best. Let that be <laughs> our intro to this whole episode. And Kaylee's actually the person who first introduced me to Greenleaf Geek. I did. A few of us have a text thread that is basically just filled with like shiny math rocks that we mm -hmm. want to buy. And Kaylee made a point of introducing me to Greenleaf Geek because... I think I think all of us do this, but we're always on the prowl for artists that we mm -hmm. can shop from and support because it's so satisfying getting to see someone's brain work. And one of the joys of social media is that all of these exceptional artists are constantly showing off their work and their creative process. And Leah from Greenleaf Geek is like peak, peak dice making content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, for sure. The other day she posted a picture of this like chonky D20. Oh, it was, the, it was a big boy. Yes, an entire galaxy is inside mm -hmm. of it. Oh, what does that mean? The take my money. Yes. <laughs> the Futurama, the fry, just take it. Mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> always. I felt that way when I think I first saw 
her stuff when she posted her Keyfish Kickstarter. Um, and as a member of the Critical Role fandom, I was just like, oh, oh, this is the best idea ever. And I am going to need to figure out how to have many of these in my possession immediately. Because mm-hmm. I'm like a collect, like I collect dice. That is one of the things that I collect. And so like getting to see all of these creative humans, it's, yeah, she's so creative. I love her stuff. She's so creative and such a good part of the community. So if you guys want to experience the wonder that are Greenleaf Geek Dice, you can check out greenleafgeek.com or on Twitter and Instagram at greenleafgeek. And when you support Leah, the fantastic artist, you support us as well. So use the coupon code Willing and Fable for 10% off your order. That's F-A-B-L-E. Some restrictions apply. And if you've ever wondered what our group text looks like, this whole conversation was your taste. It's just <laughs> geeking out about our collections and being enthusiastic about each other. So, Kaylee, what the heck are we doing today? Uh, okay. Well, this was picking the topic, I think, was the most stressful part because you were like, oh, what do you want to talk about? I was like, oh, wait. I have ADHD. I could hyperfocus on pretty much anything. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a whole mood. That's a like, whole huh, mood. What? What's the flavor of the month? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, but I also knew like I wanted it to be something kind of fairy tale related. Mm-hmm. That you know, it's like, I had to be a little bit on brand. But I'm like, oh, do do something princessy. What's what are the fairy tales that? That I still find myself, like, coming back to, that I still find myself using as inspiration for homebrews and Dungeons & Dragons stuff a lot. Like, what what are the things that have influenced my storytelling? And so I I came back to Bluebeard. And weirdly enough, or maybe, no, this is on brand for me, too. It's, I don't remember, like, actually reading the story itself. Obviously, I read it at some point. I don't remember when it was. Like, the, reading this, the fairy tale, the actual fairy tale wasn't the formative experience for me. It was a feminist retelling of it by Francesca Leah Block in one of her um, anthology collections of, like, short retellings of fairy tales. Uh, and she rewrote it uh, with Bluebeard as a predatory, like, music producer in Los Angeles. What? Ooh. Whoa. It, oh, I do not have the book in Los Angeles, but look it up. Um, I have, uh, I'm sure we'll have it linked in. I think it's called uh, Ro- The Rose and the Beast. Uh, and the story is called Bones. We will absolutely have that on our recommendations page for you all because one or both of us will be purchasing that book. Yes. So if you want to find a link to that book, uh, we have a recommendations page on our website. And it is one of the tabs that will be under the books and stories section. Yeah, and there's there's so many other good fairy tale retellings in there. I think she is one of the authors who first introduced the idea that you could you could take the stories you like and then reimagine them and put your own stamp on them or like pick out that thread, the thing that really drew you to the story and chase that down mm. instead of you know what whoever who actually wrote it which honestly the ones who publish it usually an old white man uh yeah we're gonna have we're gonna have different things that interest us sometimes you know there's a lot of things that old white men really like that i'm like eh okay but what about that shiny thing over there so you know it's really handy to have this 
language of story with both of you because I think by this point, the three of us have a, a breadth of stories kind of floating around our brains. And I think we often reference them in conversation and then like zoom off. 180 degrees <laughs> in a similar but distinctly different direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that having that uh, shorthand of understanding different like storytelling tropes or fairy tale tropes would be like, oh, you know, like it's that thing. You can say, oh, this guy is such a blue beard or um, you can say make like a Sleeping Beauty yeah. reference and people will kind of understand that shorthand because it's such like a part of our cultural language you can make these references that everybody understands and then also that these um the shorthand has kind of evolved in our language so saying that someone is a bluebeard means something different now mm -hmm. than saying it when the story was first published i'm gonna actually i'm gonna talk about that like a little bit later because i there are a couple of parts of that that i found really interesting when i was doing research i love etymology give me the etymology all day every day I only yeah. know about blue bearding as a verb. That is the start and stop of my knowledge on this story. I'm going to admit something right now. I don't think I could tell you what blue bearding as a verb means. Well, yeah. What does it mean to you, Rowan? So to me, it it describes someone who consistently just kills off women. So it'll be someone who marries women and then kills them off or gets in relationships with women and kills them off or is in positions of power with women and kills them off. But now kind of in modern society, quote unquote, kills them off could just be destroying a woman in some way, which is why when you mentioned the music producer retelling, I was like, oh, yeah, bluebearding, I get you. It's, it's to me, the idea of a man using his power over and over and over again to take what he wants from a woman and then axe her. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that the fact that that's such like a a relatable or just like an accessible reference in society it and it's something I noticed when I was doing my research that like this tale and the figure of Bluebeard has really interested Women specifically, or and you know, femme presenting people, uh, anyone who's not a cis hetero mm -hmm. man, has found something in this story that just like keeps making them pick at it. And uh, like every analytical source that I found or pulled for my research was written by a woman. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised because it's non cis het white men who tend to like to explore and poke at what it means to have power and be in power, whereas those who are in power don't love that power being poked at and explored. That's fascinating to me because I would think that Bluebeard would be the ultimate safe choice for a man to criticize men's behavior and then no one could say that the criticism was inappropriate because a man saying that, like, a man who kills people, it like, it's just so safe. Just do it. <laughs> ah, okay. But this is actually a really great segue because your version of the story that you have in your brain isn't the version of the story, I think, that men read. <gasps> oh. Uh, like, so uh, this is why I wanted to kind of – like, I've, I've written my own kind of retelling of the story, but I wanted to open 
with a version of the story that is accessible specifically to educators. Uh, I pulled this from the University of Florida's website. They have like a lit to go session section of the website because they have a, a teaching program there that educators can just get free pieces oh. of literature and other things as resources for their classes. So it's like a, you know, obviously a fantastic resource and everybody should check it out. But this is – I have – I found a version that would be taught in class. Okay, you need to know two things before Kaylee jumps into this story. Thing number one, as she has been talking, she keeps scooching her chair in closer and closer. And just that energy is delicious. And secondly, Kaylee is about to correctly say the name Charles Perrault only about a million times And if anybody has listened to our episodes in the past, you will know that I called him Charles Perrault uh, in our Sleeping Beauty episode. And that is because saying words that you've only read is a skill I do not possess. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Saying words and reading words are completely different skills. The third thing you need to know is that um, I love Kaylee. I am so excited about this because the idea of pulling, (laughs) here's what you would have been taught and here's what it means. Oh my god, as much as Kaylee is scooching closer and getting all like squiggly and excited, oh boy, so am I. <laughs> I'm so excited. In conclusion, we are I'm a ridiculous being. Tracy is excited and we worship at the altar that is Kaylee's passion for story. So, get in there, girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Charles Bro thing is look, I have a little bit of French. Just a little bit. And it's Quebecois French, so it's also um, cowboy French. So I don't really know. What did you call it? Cowboy French. Amazing. <laughs> it is. I stole that from. I stole that from uh, my fight husband, Tyler Jones. So if he ever listens to this podcast, he'll know what it is because he he lived with an, a Quebecois person for a while. It calls it cowboy French. That is so accurate. <laughs> so again. This is a a version of Bluebeard that would be taught in a class. So it's something that is available to teachers, something they can pull from the internet and teach their classes as a way, you know, as an example of this is the story. And because the um, original story is in French, this is good English. So there's already like um, there's already like a filter that this Mm -hmm. has been put through. But looking at all the different versions, and I looked at a bunch of different versions, they're all essentially the same. And what age group is this pointed at, roughly, class-wise? Uh, I, I didn't – I couldn't tell. Um, and age group is going to be really interesting for Bluebeard. Because it was written by Charles Perrault. It was written by Charles Perrault. That, and so, like, it, it was released in the same collection that Red Riding Hood and Sleeping Beauty and Puss in Boots and all of these – which I'm going to talk about later because I have thoughts. Um. <laughs> you can't see, guys, but Rowan is shaking her head in annoyed frustration at the. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm going to talk about that because because there's a there's a thing about that, and I have thoughts. I cannot wait to hear them. But before I get too ahead of myself again, so this would probably. I feel like I remember talking kind of about Bluebeard in like late elementary school early middle school as just like the fairy tale section but also i didn't go to real people school ever i need to do elaborate on that a little bit you didn't go to real people school (laughs) like i'm a montessori child i'm a montessori child so i went to hippie school and then i went to catholic school and then i went to art school i have literally never been to a classic educational institution so i don't know i don't know how i don't know how teaching other people works but i rowan did we have a we did have a fairy tale section, but not 
I feel like mo- I never got as into fairy tales as I did like history and mythology, but that was like that's a me thing, not a standard thing. But I feel like our schools taught us more about American folk tales and then history and mythology. Right. When we were in school, there was a lot of tall American tall tales and there were very sanitized versions of stories, but counter to that programming, Tracy was diving into history and kind of going, you know, but what if we made this historically accurate in any way? And then I was <laughs> diving into ghost stories and I was like, but what if all the characters died? So I don't necessarily think that we have a good framework either for what is child appropriate. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. I think my instincts – so. Were I to put my educator hat on, which I haven't had to wear for many a year, however, I think I would I would include this maybe in like a seventh, eighth grade. Like this, this specific moment would probably be okay for middle school, post pubescent. One of the reasons I think all three of us are having so much trouble pinning this down, and Kaylee, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like at what age? Are young women and girls first faced with the reality of sexual assault and murder and a lack of bodily autonomy and how they have to police men? Yeah, I distinctly remember being handed a book, a fantasy book, a fantasy book I still love. It was one of my mom's favorites. It's one of my favorites. It's called Daughter of the Forest that has a rape in it. And I was in sixth grade and I remember reading it and my mom was like, do you understand what happened? I was like, yeah. Yeah. So uh, clearly by, by, I don't know, how old are you in sixth grade? 11, 12? I knew enough to process that. Shoot, I'm going to jump ahead because I have a lot of feelings about this and I know what Kaylee is going to get into. So let me shut up. Yeah, let's get into the actual, here's the teacher version of the story. Yeah. Again, this is the teacher version because, again, your version, Rowan, <laughs> Shoot. is different. Okay, go, go. <laughs> it's different. And... Oh, okay. Okay, 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 okay. So, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here is Bluebeard by Charles Perrault. There was, some time ago, a gentleman who was very rich. He had fine town and country houses. His dishes and plates were all of gold or silver. His rooms were hung with damask. His chairs and sofas were covered with the richest silks. And his carriages were all gilt with gold in a grand style. But it happened that this gentleman had a blue beard, which made him so very frightful and ugly that none of the ladies in the parts where he lived would venture to go into his company. Now, there was a certain lady of rank who lived very near him and had two daughters, both of them of very great beauty. Bluebeard asked her to bestow one of them upon him for a wife and left it to herself to choose which of the two it should be. But both the young ladies again and again said they would never marry Bluebeard, Yet, to be as civil as they could, each of them said the only reason why she would not have him was because she was loath to hinder her sister from the match, which would be such a good one for her. Still, the truth of the matter was, they could neither of them bear the thoughts of having a husband with a blue beard. And besides, they had heard of his having been married to several wives before, and nobody could tell what had ever become of any of them. 
As Bluebeard wished very much to gain their favor, he asked the lady and her daughters, and some ladies who were on a visit at their house, to go with him to one of his country seats, where they spent a whole week, during which they passed all their time in nothing but parties for hunting and fishing, music, dancing, and feasts. No one even thought of going to bed, and the nights were passed in merrymakings of all kinds. In short, the time rolled on in so much pleasure that the youngest of the two sisters began to think that the beard which she had been so very much afraid of was not so very blue, and that the gentleman who owned it was vastly civil and pleasing. Soon after the return home, she told her mother that she had no longer any dislike to accept a blue beard for her husband, and in a very short time, they were married. About a month after the marriage had taken place, Bluebeard told his wife that he should be forced to leave her for a few weeks, as he had some affairs to tend to in the country. He desired her to be sure to indulge herself in every kind of pleasure, to invite as many of her friends as she liked, and to treat them with all sorts of dainties, that her time might pass pleasantly till he came back again. Here, said he, are the keys of the two large wardrobes. This is the key of the great box that contains the best plate, which we use for company. This belongs to my strong box, where I keep my money, and this belongs to the casket in which all are my jewels. Here also is a master key to all the rooms in the house. But this small key belongs to the closet at the end of the long gallery on the ground floor. I give you leave, said he, to open or to do what you like with all the rest except this closet. This, my dear, you must not enter, nor even put the key into the lock for all the world. If you do not obey me in this one thing, you must expect the most dreadful punishments. She promised to obey his orders in the most faithful manner, and Bluebeard, after kissing her tenderly, stepped into his coach and drove away. When Bluebeard was gone, the friends of his wife did not wait to be asked, so eager were they to see all the riches and fine things she had gained by marriage, for they had none of them gone to the wedding on account of their dislike to the Bluebeard of the bridegroom. As soon as ever they came to the house, they ran about from room to room, from closet to closet, and then from wardrobe to wardrobe looking into each with wonder and delight, and said that every fresh one they came to was richer and finer than they had seen the moment before. At last they came to the drawing-rooms, where their surprise was made still greater by the costly grandeur of the hangings, the sofas, the chairs, carpets, tables, sideboards, and looking-glasses. The frames of these last were silver-gilt, most richly adorned, and in the glasses they saw themselves from head to foot. In short, Nothing could exceed the richness of what they saw, and they all did not fail to admire and envy the good fortune of their friend. But all this time, the bride herself was far from thinking about the fine speeches they made to her, for she was eager to see what was in the closet her husband had told her not to open. So great indeed was her desire to do this, that without once thinking how rude it would be to leave her guests, she slipped down a private staircase that led to this forbidden closet, and in such a hurry that she was two or three times in danger of falling downstairs and breaking her neck. When she reached the door of the closet, she stopped for a few moments to think of the order her husband had given her, and how he had told her that he would not fail to keep his word and punish her very severely if she did not obey him. But she was so very curious to know what was inside that she made up her mind to venture in spite of everything. She then, with a trembling hand, put the key into the lock, and the door straight flew open. As the window shutters were closed, she at first could see nothing. 
but in a short time, she saw that the floor was covered with clotted blood on which the bodies of several dead women were lying. These were all the wives whom Bluebeard had married and killed one after another. At this sight, she was ready to sink with fear, and the key of the closet door, which she held in her hand, fell on the floor. When she had a little got the better of her fright, she took it up, locked the door, and made haste back to her own room, that she might have a little time to get into a humor to amuse her company. But this she could not do, so great was her fright at what she had seen, as she found that the key of the closet had got stained with blood in falling on the floor. She wiped it two or three times over to clean it, yet still the blood kept on it the same as before. She next washed it, but the blood did not move at all. She then scoured it with brick dust and after with sand, but in spite of all she could do, the blood was still there. For the key was a fairy who was Bluebeard's friend, so that as fast as she got off the blood on one side, it came again on the other. Early in the evening, Bluebeard came home, saying that before he had gone far on his journey, he was met by a horseman who was coming to tell him that his affair in the country was settled without his being present, upon which his wife said everything she could think of to make him believe she was in a transport of joy at his sudden return. The next morning, he asked her for the keys. She gave them to him, but as she could not help showing her fright, Bluebeard easily guessed what had been the matter. How is it, said he, that the key of the closet upon the ground floor is not here? Is it not, said the wife? Then I must have left it on my dressing table. Be sure you give it to me by and by, replied Bluebeard. After going a good many times backwards and forwards as if she was looking for the key, she was at last forced to give it to Bluebeard. He looked hard at it and then said, how came this blood upon the key? I am sure I do not know, replied the poor lady, at the same time turning white as a sheet. You do not know, said Bluebeard sternly, but I know well enough. You have been in the closet on the ground floor. Very well, madam, since you are so mighty fond of this closet, you shall be sure to take your place among the ladies you saw there. His wife, who was almost dead with fear, now fell upon her knees, asking his pardon a thousand times for her fault, and begged him to forgive her, looking all the time so very mournful and lovely that she would have melted any heart that was not harder than a rock. But Bluebeard only said, No, no, madam, you shall die this very minute. Alas, said the poor trembling creature, if I must die, give me at least a little time to say my prayers. I give you, replied the cruel Bluebeard, half a quarter of an hour, not a moment longer. When Bluebeard had left her to herself, she called her sister, and after telling her, as well as she could for sobbing, that she had but half a quarter of an hour to live, prithee, said she, Sister Anne, this was her sister's name, run up to the top of the tower and see if my brothers are not in sight, for they said they would visit me today, and if you see them, make a sign for them to gallop on as fast as ever they can. Her sister straight did as she was desired, and the poor trembling lady every minute cried out to her, "'Anne, sister Anne, do you see anyone coming?' Her sister said, "'I see nothing but the sun which makes a dust, and the grass which looks green.'" In the meanwhile, Bluebeard, with a great scimitar in his hand, bawled as loud as he could to his wife, "'Come down at once, or I will fetch you.'" "'One moment longer, I beseech you,' replied she, and again called softly to her sister, "'Sister Anne, do you see anyone coming?' To which she answered, I see nothing but the sun which makes a dust and the grass which looks green. Bluebeard now again bawled out, 
Come down, I say, this very moment, or I shall come to fetch you. I am coming, indeed, I will come in one minute, sobbed his wretched wife. Then once more she cried out, Anne, sister Anne, do you see anyone coming? I see, said her sister, a cloud of dust, a little to the left. Do you think it is my brother's, said the wife? Alas, no, dear sister, replied she, it is only a flock of sheep. Will you come down, madam, said Bluebeard, in the greatest rage. Only one single moment more, said she, and then she called out for the last time, Sister Anne, Sister Anne, do you see no one coming? I see, replied her sister, two men on horseback coming, but they are still a great way off. Thank God, cried she, they are my brothers, beckon them to make haste. Bluebeard now cried out so loud for her to come down that his voice shook the whole house. The poor lady, with her hair loose and all in tears, now came down and fell on her knees, begging him to spare her life. But he stopped her, saying, All this is of no use, for you shall die. And then, seizing her by the hair, raised his scimitar to strike off her head. The poor woman now begged a single moment to say one prayer. No, no, said Bluebeard, I will give you no more time. You have had too much already. And again he raised his arm. Just at this instant, a loud knocking was heard at the gates, which made Bluebeard wait for a moment to see who it was. The gates now flew open, and two officers, dressed in their uniform, came in and with their swords in their hands ran straight to Bluebeard, who, seeing they were his wife's brothers, tried to escape from their presence. But they pursued and seized him before he had gone twenty steps, and plunging their swords into his body, he fell down dead at their feet." The poor wife, who was almost as dead as her husband, was not able at first to rise and embrace her brothers, but she soon came to herself, and as Bluebeard had no heirs, she found herself the owner of his great riches. She gave a part of his vast fortune as a marriage dowry to her sister Anne, who soon after became the wife of a young gentleman who had long loved her. Some of the money she laid out in buying captain's commissions for her two brothers, and the rest she gave to a worthy gentleman whom she married shortly after, and whose kind treatment soon made her forget Bluebeard's cruelty. This is <laughs> the true crime industry that is used to convince white women that the police state is the only thing that can save them wrapped up in a fairy tale. Oh my god. Oh, but just you wait. So, okay. So that's the story. Again, lots of different versions are all the same. A uh, woman marries a rich man with a blue beard, told not to go in one specific room. She does find the bodies of his former wives, finds out, almost kills her, saved by her family. Like, that's the story. But the educational version doesn't include a moral, which all of the Mother Goose tales that Charles Perrault writes, they usually come with a moral, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the ones that I, I remember reading, they came with the moral, and the moral is one of the reasons that I that I keep coming back to the story. So, I'm going to include the one that I found uh, in the translation by Christopher Betts, uh, published by Oxford World's Classics. The moral of this tale. Curiosity's all very well in its way, but satisfy it and you risk much remorse. Examples of which can be seen every day. The feminine sex will deny it, of course. But the pleasure you wanted, once taken, is lost. And the knowledge you looked for is not worth the cost. Oh! <laughs> oh! So the more Okay, let me just recite that moral of the tale to make sure I got it right. So it's all well and good to be curious, <laughs> but it's not worth it to satisfy it if you're a lady... Okay, the, the pleasure you wanted once taken as lost really sticks out as something a little bit more than just simple curiosity to me. So, I mean, it's essentially, it's curiosity killed the cat. Right. But, like, cu curiosity killed the lady cat. That's what we should take from the story is curiosity killed the cat. 
cats are often a stand-in for women and femininity in stories is not lost yeah. on me either. So, okay. I literally put pause for outrage in my notes reading this because I was like, <laughs> ah! uh, <laughs> So that's that moral. There is a secondary moral that uh, especially comes with the edition that I found. And um, it is it is a secondary moral. So. People with sense who use their eyes, study the world, and know its ways will not take long to realize that this is a tale of bygone days. And what it tells is no one true, whether his beard be black or blue, that modern husband does not ask his wife to undertake a task impossible for her to do. And even when he's dissatisfied, with her he's quiet as a mouse. It isn't easy to decide which is the master in the house. Ah. Okay, so the first the first moral is ladies don't be curious, curiosity killed a cat. The second moral is men, they can't help it. Okay? Don't be mad, don't be mean. It's not their fault. That's what I'm getting, and I'm not loving it. Yeah, not awesome, okay. right? I want to I want to circle back to this this black or blue situation. Um because the whole time you were telling this story and everyone in the story is going, oh, but his blue beard. All I could think of was gun bluing, which is the, the chemical y- you use to keep guns looking black or um, bluing. It's often used in dye to make things black. And I could not stop wondering, is this man appalling to these people not because his beard is an unnatural blue but because it is a very dark black so that's an interesting point to bring up because there was a period of time i think her name is terry terry windling um especially she's got a blog she's a folklorist and she she talks a little bit about the racist undertones in bluebeard and whether or not whether or not they're actually there or the the story itself was used for a while to encourage racism and xenophobia specifically for people from Middle East, North Africa. Yeah, to me, it doesn't feel like an undertone. It feels very no, yeah. overt. But that's, uh, that's the translation. Right. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's because it's the translation. In the original French, it's a little bit more because um, Charles Perrault – he used a lot of his fairy tales to speak to the the court and the personalities around him in the French court at the time who were obsessed with the ancients and the okay. classics. Mm-hmm. And so he was using a lot of his a lot of his tales, a lot of the villains and the the clowns in his tales. He would put in little hints about who they who they were inspired by in the court. Which, because that's not relevant, uh, like, parody to modern audiences, that stuff usually gets cut out of mm. French, uh, of uh, English translations Classics from the French. Classics, and we're reaching for, like, a kind of a Zeus vibe here? Is it, like, a Zeus who's always with everyone else? Ancient Greco-Roman, that's the height of art. Can we yeah. also just quickly share a laugh about the fact that, like, I don't care what this key is made out of, fairy or otherwise, so many women have to deal with blood every single month. We know how to get blood out of things. Like, that was so clearly written by a man. Yeah. (laughs) I like that they explained all the steps of, like, this, then this, and this, then brick dust. Then, For me, the two things that stuck out, one, I'll say, as soon as you talked about having a blue beard, I thought of 
Dario Naharis from the Game of Thrones books. Because mm. in the books, mm-hmm. um, if you guys have not seen the video of George R. R. Martin saying in the books for a minute and a half straight, it's it's very wonderful. But in the books, <laughs> Dario Naharis has blue hair, a blue beard, and a gold mustache. So that's all I could picture. Second of all, can we talk about how in the story, something she was very concerned about after finding the dead body. Was, or right before it, I don't remember which, uh, was she was just very concerned about being rude to her guests. Wow. No, no, no. There's no way. If First of all, if a, a, your husband gives you a key and is like, go everywhere else but here, you're getting all your girlfriends and you're going, we're going here, this spot. Yeah, never, not no. alone. If you find out there's a bunch of bodies, there's not a, oh, let me keep my guests happy. It's, ladies, what are we going to do? Let's put together our true crime knowledge and get out of here. <laughs> Like, if you need your brothers to save you, call them that night that he, before he gets home. How is she uh, calling them? Because there's no, there's not a flip phone. Is she just shouting? So I guess, and it's something that I always I noticed in just my now rereading these stories so many times is that there's no mention of the guests and her like women friends that came over ever leaving. All of this is happening while the guests are still somehow around. Because her sister is there right. with her. She, they just got, like, sequestered to a different part of the house. So she is calling from a different part of the house to where her sister is, up in the tower, looking for her brothers who were planning to already be there, coming to visit that day because she invited all her friends and family because her husband was going to be out. And her sister is named Anne. And she has no our- name. Leading lady who's about to get murdered has, yeah, no name. No name. That's, no name. I mean, remember with the Frau Hollis story? I was like, <sighs> this is so frustrating. I can't keep writing the girl. So I gave her a name. But this is why I love these stories so much because, Kaylee, you'll know, if I am correct, Charles Perrault specifically marketed his stories to the upper class, but to the upper class, like, here are stories for your young daughters. We're going to teach them what their value is and to get married. And it is definitely not anything other than being be- beautiful and available for murder. <laughs> so yeah, here's the thing about that. Um, so Charles Perrault, like, a couple things about Charles Perrault is he was a, he was a member of the court. He and his brothers actually, like... Charles Perrault is actually kind of interesting. Like, he and his brothers were all members of uh, the French court. And they were, like, architects and designers and, and, and like, alchemists. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they had some good power in the French court. He was already a member of the court. And then there was, like, drama because it's the French court and there's gonna be drama. Uh, and the, I think the king at the time when he was a member of the court was Prince, uh, King Louis the 14th. When was this time period? This was like the, um, like late 1600s, mid to late 1600s. Okay. I think that was Louis the 14th. Yeah. So King Louis the 14th and he, like, I'm pretty sure he was part of the, like design team for the Louvre or his brother was like, he was like one of those moments of just like, there was a lot mm-hmm. going on and he got to be a part of it. Uh, and then there was drama because he was interested in, you know, in the salons and all these things of like, he was interested in, in new art and modern art and, and, and 
giving people their flowers while they're alive, essentially, okay. right? Like, like venerating the people who are making things now. And there was such a break in that, like, he literally called the people, if I can recall correctly, who were obsessed with Greco-Roman art, the ancients. <laughs> and it was always, everything was like the ancients versus, you know, the people who are the hip and the modern and all that stuff. And so he, in the salons, he was actually around a lot of women mm, who were writing. Okay. And he attended a lot of, a lot of salons that were run by women and, and the, like the term fairy tale was coined by a woman. And they were, they were the ones who were writing a lot of fairy tales and, and being inspired by other folk tales and actually put, putting them into collections. Like mm. it was them who were, who were doing that. And inspired by that, I suppose, slash, I don't know, stealing all their stuff. Probably. Um, <laughs> nah. uh, when he was kind of forced into retirement, like he didn't write these fairy, like write this fairy tale collection until he was sixty-seven years old. Okay. Oh, I don't know why I thought he was younger. Yeah. No, he was an old man. So you know, it makes it makes sense that there's this old man who's who's you know, writing these kind of like patriarchal condescending. And just because tales. you were a hipster when you were young doesn't mean you don't evolve into the thing that you once railed against. Oh, think about all the boomers who were once hippies. Right. Yeah, they're like, oh, I'm I'm cool now and I understand things now and I'm not mm-hmm. gross. Like, you know, uh, he you know, he became the thing he hated, right? He was like mocking the ancients and then... Yeah, live long enough to become your own villain, that kind of thing. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And he, uh, so, and the Wikipedia article about him says like, you know, oh, he, you know, in 16 whatever, he, he stopped... Working at the court, he was forced into retirement because there was a scandal. Um, somebody was having a fight with somebody else. And to focus on his children. And this is when he wrote this book. At 67 years old, it was time to focus on his children. <laughs> that's, that's a, uh, yeah, that sounds like a man right there. Sounds like politics. Yeah, sounds like, yeah, sounds like a man. Oh, his, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a lot. Yeah, and his wife had been dead at that point. For like twenty years. Oh wow! So I don't know. Like his his children were in their like they're probably getting married and having their own kids. Yeah, like they're adults. So he was writing. So when I say focus on the kids, and then he wrote Mother Goose Tales. My assumption this whole time was that oh he was a young father, or he wrote this like during like his childhood or his fatherhood when his children were in their childhood. Right, and that makes sense to me, but he wasn't. He was a 67-year-old man writing these fairy tales for his children who were adults. Isn't that a thread that we've seen before, though? I mean, isn't that something – wasn't Dr. Seuss kind of famously not interested in kids and having them around? I'm not – I wouldn't be surprised to hear it. Dr. Seuss has fallen out of favor since we were reading Dr. Seuss books for a myriad of – uh just reasons. Um, but I think a lot of people who write content for children don't particularly like children because they have that kind of, I know best. You are all raising your children wrong and I don't like it. I'm going to fix it. <laughs> Which is so funny because I have a, a good friend who is a children's book author who just is so good with kids and loves, loves writing stories for them and putting it into just this really fun perspective for them to read. And she's also an illustrator, so she does 
children's books, writing and illustrations, and her stories are just so funny and so, like, quippy. She sounds like she has more than one good thing that happens to her per week, and I love that. (laughs) (laughs) She'd probably disagree with you, to be honest. (laughs) It also sounds like those are stories that are actually for children, and I don't think that these are actually for children. That's fair. I don't think that that was what the purpose was. Um, So the thing about Mother Goose and the story collection, he presented it a handwritten, like hand-drawn collection of five stories in 1695 with a dedication, not to a child, but to Princess Elizabeth Charlotte de Bourbon-Dolin, the niece of King Louis, who was 19. Ooh. Oh, is that oh. why Bluebeard is definitely convincing women to marry him via oral sex or just sex in general? I don't even. I cannot be the only one who heard that. <laughs> hey, Rowan, I'm gonna need you back up just a second, just yeah. like a little bit, because like I definitely heard the you know myriad of pleasures, blah 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 blah. You went like an <laughs> extra step further than my brain did. I think for me, because the description involved so much detail about the beard in relation to the pleasures. Did it? (laughs) (laughs) It, you know what? I, listen, it could be. I really wish you could see the face that Kaylee and I are making right now. to me so much like a ugh, we don't like bluebeard and now it's like a we like the beard <laughs> flip <laughs> i when i was reading the story i watched rowan make the face and i had to just like i see you acknowledge it while it was happening <laughs> i can i cannot look at rowan when i'm reading stories because she has such full bodied reactions and it's very satisfying but also <laughs> I will just burst out laughing at my own joke that she's laughing at while I'm trying to tell it. Oh yeah, no, I couldn't look at either of you. I was I was watching in the out of the court like my my peripheral vision. I could see <laughs> both of you moving and reacting to the storytelling, and I'm just like, no, finish the thing and then talk about the thing. I I come on, the no one ever thought of going to bed, and the nights were passed in merrymaking of all kinds. In short, the time rolled on in so much pleasure that the youngest of the two sisters began to think that the beard, which she had been so much afraid of, was not so very blue, and the gentleman who owned it was vastly civil and pleasing. Come on! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to say that it's not there, but I also will again remind you that this is a translation. So I don't know, I don't know exactly what was in the, the, the original French. Uh, but again, like this was also from, from like exact purposes. Um, and I mispronounced her name, so I'm going to do it properly this time. Princess Elizabeth Charlotte de Bourbon de Orléans. I respect it. Um, again, cowboy French, uh, nailed it. As we all know on this podcast, French scares me. I can't do it. I can't read it. Okay, as we all know on this podcast, we make no promises to ever say a single word correctly. We just promise to try very hard. I try. It just scares me. I don't understand. There's some letters you say and some you don't, and I don't know which. (laughs) And I kind of checked, but like, I feel so much pressure because a huge portion of my family is fluent, (laughs) and I miss the bus. Again... 
Kaylee, I got you. A huge portion of my family, <coughs> all, is fluent in English, and I'm just here. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. You are doing great. Yeah. So, again, this was for her. So, she, so two things to know about her is she was known as – or a couple things to know about her is she was known as Mademoiselle. She was, like, the most eligible bachelorette at the time. Like, she – was very, very popular and favor with her meant favor with the king. And it was a whole big deal. Uh, she was just beloved. And so he gave her this collection of fairy tales when she was 19 and not married. And the dedication reads, you know, there's, it's a long dedication, but it kind of ends with these tales almost always contain a wise lesson, which becomes more or less apparent according to the sharpness of the listener's perception. So he gave, he's like, these tales are for you. They're written for you. They are written for you, unmarried, 19-year-old mm-hmm, mm-hmm. noblewoman. And the, the, the tales in the book, the original ta- five tales, Sleeping Beauty, Bluebeard, Little Red Riding Hood, Puss in Boots, and the Fairies. Which you, you guys talked about a version of the fairies, I think, before. Um, that was the... The gold and the toads and the... I don't think we have. It was... It, well, the fairies is inspired by a tale that you guys talked about. It's the it's the girl who, like, was nice to the one woman and then she's... Oh, oh Frau Holla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah Kaylee, yeah. you and I talk about all of these things and I don't know what we've said on the podcast. Um, <laughs> that was me desperately trying to remember what Ron and I talked about on the podcast. Do you know the morals for any of the other stories? So, yes, I do. I actually... I, so I wrote down Little Red Riding Hood because... So... Going back to the second moral, which is, you know, not great, but I think better than the original moral. It's better than, you know, curiosity kill the cat. It's like, well, okay. So like, you know, husbands be nice to your wives because you should you right. should be nice mm-hmm. to your wives, basically. But like, it feels just a little bit more in line to me with the man who wrote Little Red Riding Hood and Sleeping Beauty and Bluebeard, which to me are cautionary tales or quote unquote based on cautionary tales, Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. About predatory men. Is it, hey, 19-year-old, young, beautiful woman, don't get involved in predatory men, potentially because I'm a better option? Or is it, hey, 19-year-old woman, please be beautiful and also don't be upset when men are predatory to you because it's really your fault? So, like, again, while this – so while this – it all feels, like, victim-blaming and patriarchal, and I said that a couple of times – but they, it's also here, here is the facts of the world and here are the people that you can run into when you are no longer under the protection of a royal court or a family or something like that. Like, this is a concerned father to a daughter, mm-hmm. even perhaps. Like, speaking really generously <laughs> of Charles Perrault, right? An out of touch old man speaking to a girl he is related to who is in that mesh of looking of gonna get married where she doesn't have really any control over it but here are things to be aware of and um so like little red riding hood's moral is you know i know we're talking about other things but so little red riding Hood's moral is very intense it's young children as this tale will show and mainly pretty girls with charm do wrong and often come to harm and letting those they do not know stay talking to them when they meet. And if they don't do as they ought, it's no surprise that some are caught by wolves who take them off to eat. 
I call them wolves, but you will find that some are not the savage kind, not howling, ravening, or raging. Their manners seem instead engaging. They're softly spoken and discreet. Young ladies whom they talk to on the street, they follow to their homes and through the hall and upstairs to their rooms. When they're there, they're not as friendly as they might appear. These are the most dangerous wolves of all. Ye- that advice Oof. is a bummer, but it's it's applicable. <laughs> It is. It is. And like that is a man talking to his daughter who listens to other men when they talk yep. about women. And also has been in salons with women who are talking about the same thing. Like this is a man who actually did have an opportunity to straddle both worlds a little bit. And um if you actually look, I brought up I brought a picture, <gasps> I brought a visual aid. Uh like if you look at the original illustration for the collection, it's like a very the very famous like frontispiece, it's the the illustration that's directly facing the title Mm -hmm. page it's an older woman sitting in front of a fire with a you know well-dressed young woman a child and i think that's like a young man in like court dress um and it's got you know and it's you know stories of mother goose so there's a young girl there and so all of this all of this really sent me down a rabbit hole of like okay so this is a man talking to his daughter is it the princess? Would he have really known the princess at 67 years old, like, being a member? Right. Like, probably not. Who is who is the child that he's talking to? Like, I couldn't find – like, I couldn't find almost anything about his children. As far as the princess goes, you know, it, it could totally have been written for her. She was – they were given to her in 1695 with those five tales – uh, which, you know, are, if you look at them one way, can definitely be lessons about interacting with men safely and, and advice for a single young woman, you know, even a noble when someone very high rank. And the full version, like the published version, was published in 1697, which was the year she was planning to get married. Like the, the, like the marriage was being prepared to the Duke of Lorraine. Uh, which, you know, according to Wikipedia relatively loving and happy until the duke had an affair 10 years into the marriage they had like 10 good years Uh, so you know she probably learned something right in that it was you know seemed to be pretty Mm -hmm. good um Uh, after hearing bluebeard i'm like one affair 10 years in sure no one's dead awesome like also (laughs) just having studied history it's like one affair 10 years in yeah it seemed pretty loyal for a while like it's just when you hear stories of dukes and duchesses and kings and queens and everyone of that ilk. Good job, buddy. You waited 10 years. You're such a good man. At least 10 years that she knew of. Right. Or did, or maybe 10 years until it became right. a big deal. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, we don't really know a whole lot about that. And, like, you can't be too, you can't feel too bad for her. I wouldn't feel too bad for her. She burned a bunch of people at the stake for being not being Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Too bad there weren't Mother Goose tales for religious intolerance. Hey, mm. uh, no, I, uh, she's so she was fine, but also I feel like she was a little bit detached. And a lot of authors will dedicate things to royals for clout, right? So when I was trying to find his actual daughter, there is like zero information. Like, so there's there's information about his youngest son because he actually originally published Mother Goose Tales in 1697 under his youngest son's name to avoid getting um, – to avoid any issues with what he again called the ancients because 
there was a lot of infighting in court with who's allowed to, you know, revere art and that kind of a thing. And so he, his pseudonym or his, you know, nom de plume was actually his youngest son. So, like, we know his youngest son exists and we know his name. But he he had more than one child. And, like, to the point of people don't people don't care to the point of we don't know if there are three or four children. Oh, wow. And the the fourth one, the one that's confusing, is the fact that he had three sons. Did he have a daughter too? So the daughter's the one that's in question, not the the daughter's the one that's in question. Um, and so like I, God, I really had a totally different idea of the direction of of where this story was going to go. And then I couldn't find this daughter. I was like, oh, it's going to be easy to find daughter's name. And so I get went down this weird rabbit hole. Because I was, I was sure she existed. There was no way that these stories were just written for some princess he barely knew. Right. I talked to, I, I talked to men today who say they haven't thought about these kinds of concepts until they had a daughter. Like they are married right. men who, even with their wives, didn't think about this sort of behavior, and then they had daughters, and suddenly they're like, "I must protect all women." Mm-hmm. It has yeah. very strong. I had a daughter energy. It it does, especially those stories. Like you don't write those morals with Red Riding Hood or Bluebeard or you know even Sleeping Beauty or Puss in Boots to like a, a much smaller degree of follow the rules. The rules are there for a reason. They keep us all safe because these are the realities of the world that I'm aware of. Like there is, you know, it's not the most flattering concern, but there is concern there. Right, I can't take the teeth out of the wolf, but I can teach you how to avoid right. the wolf. Right. So, I found one website, <laughs> one, that mentioned her by name oh. and told her story. And it's a blog entry. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, it's actually kind of a cool blog. It's from an associate professor at Princeton. It's from 2017. And it opens with... Marie-Madeleine Perrault, 1674 to 1701. This is no fairy tale, but a true story. It is based on archival sources that have lain dormant for centuries and, to my knowledge, never been published or discussed. Like Sleeping Beauty in the Woods, the time has come for this secluded file to be awakened and to speak again. Warning, there will be no happy ending. So this... This blog is actually really cool, and and you may find more uses for it later down the line. Um, It's all based on, like, rare, forgotten, or, like, lost artifacts and documents and the stories around them. So this professor, uh, his Volker Schroeder, um, goes into, like, physical, like, pieces of paper that are just kind of lost to history. Oh, I know what blog you're talking about. I've cited it in our sources before. It's such a cool, it's such a cool blog because it's sometimes these little, like, Little tickets and pieces of paper and receipts are the only things left that prove that someone can exist or something happened. He's such a cool professor. And in his, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the About Me page. But he's very dry. Kind of funny. Ooh. (laughs) I feel like you have to be to be the kind of person who dives so deep into the minutia of history to discover what has been forgotten. So the reason why this story comes from him is because he found the the last remaining documents from the legal battles <gasps> that she was engaged in with her father and her eldest brother over her inheritance because she was the eldest ah! child, but she was a woman. <gasps> 
Oh my God. She was the eldest and the daughter. And that's like, I would have thought, oh, probably the last kid. They would have just kind of forgotten. I don't know. She was the first. So she was in a legal battle with him and that put them at odds. So, wow. Almost her whole life, she was in a legal battle trying to gain independence and some kind of just financial security in her life. The only daughter in a family of four children and the rest were the rest were boys. And so her the, her next, you know, eldest brother, they were constantly fighting about about security and because he was a man, he could have security in other ways, and she couldn't. Mm-hmm. She had family money, and that was it. And so she was just constantly trying to to just find security. It became so contentious that he didn't even include her in his memoirs, which he wrote after she died of chi- in childbirth. <gasps> that he wrote memoirs after she died, and he didn't put her in his memoirs, which is one of the reasons why everyone is like, "Did he have a daughter?" He did. They were just fighting all the time. So he was like, whatever, I don't have a daughter. So now I'm like, well, maybe the princess, because he didn't actually have like a real relationship with her, was this like stand in ideal daughter that he wished he had, like someone mm-hmm. who was like malleable, easier to deal with. Um, so I don't I don't know. But but like Marie Madeline was like wiped from history. It's interesting for him to choose to wipe her from history and yet still write a book aimed at the protection of women when he fought against kind of the one protection that he could easily provide to her. But it seems like the protections he's thinking about are the kinds of things he wished she would have done. Find the good, rich person and behave yourself well and be married off Right, he's removing himself from the equation. Right, he's not talking, he's not saying, I want you to fight for yourself. I want you to push the boundaries. He's saying, follow the rules. So it's a de- it's I can see where he's writing this to an ideal daughter that he feels he never had. Right, because like don't you need to get married and find power in a good husband and mm-hmm. security in a good husband. Your father, you know, is doing what he's already like uh, the father's job is done when you reach a certain age and now it's time for now it's time for marriage stuff. So that's like it's wild. And Volker Schroeder was like, well, you know, the daughter has to, you know, he had to have some kind of relationship or feelings for his daughter because she's the one featured in the frontispiece. She's the one featured in the illustration. But uh, in the other book, I I pulled a lot of information from, which uh, is one of the reasons that I, like, linger on, on um, translation so much is uh, Mother Goose Refigured, a critical translation of Charles Perrault's fairy tales by Christine A. Jones, where she's talking about what's lost in translating from French to English. And it's mm-hmm. where I learned a lot about the dedication and his either relationship or just whatever, the just the significance of the princess in it. She says, well, the, the woman in, in, the, in the illustration is a princess. That's just something that she just, she doesn't even like say, oh, this is up for discussion. Mm. Like, this is just what it is. Mm. And Volker Schroeder's like, oh, well, it's clearly his daughter. So the fact that that's still, like, a mess is so interesting to me. And it was it was why I just I, – I spent so much time trying to understand who Marie Madeline was. Because the princess, you know, history has lots of things to say about her and they're good and they're bad. And she was a complicated human who wasn't super awesome. But so beloved – 
that, you know, if these stories were for her, I think she got a lot out of them. Because she did follow the rules. You know, relatively. But I don't think that Marie Madeline did. And she died. Right. It's such a snub to his daughter to dedicate it to the princess. Which I can see, you know, it's clout and favor and all of that. But for his at this point, deceased daughter, right? Was it by that point? Oh, I don't know the yeah. timeline of when she died. Well, so she didn't. She didn't die. She hadn't. Di- she was still alive in sixty-seven. She died in seventeen o one. Was publishing under his youngest son's name a way to get something for his youngest son as well? Because he's the lowest on the inheritance. Right, that's what I was going to ask. Totem pole. It. It might have been, honestly, the thing about the youngest son is the youngest son was the only one to survive. So despite all of the inheritance struggles, right, the youngest son was the only person to outlive his parents. And I don't, I do think that he mostly published to just avoid potential blowback to the stories because his name on something would have attracted the ire of the people he'd mm. been fighting in court with for so long. Right. But... Can the princess versus daughter dedication versus who the story's actually for be a both, both, both is good kind of moment? Like a, yes, we're dedicating it to the princess because we want clout, yeah. we want power, but also this is what I would write for my daughter who I am, who I don't have a good relationship to with. To me, it just smacks of... Right, of who he wanted his daughter to be. Like, not writing it to his actual daughter, but to his idealized version of his daughter that he then put on to the princess because she was a very prominent figure who had to obey all the rules and probably did so very well in public, which is where he would likely only Mm. see her. Yeah. I can't believe you actually found that, Kaylee. You are the Sherlock Holmes of Willing and Fable right now. (sighs) Mm Mm-hmm. I was so... it. uh, I spent hours... It was just hours. I I was so like, okay, great. Oh, so now I was talking about his daughter. Where's his daughter? Wait, suddenly this is what all of this is. I'm not talking about anything else. Where's his daughter? I had this whole plan. <laughs> Where's this woman? Does she exist? And I was, I found, in addition to the documents that Volker Schroeder found, I found one, I because I was like, I the only thing I have been able to find is this marriage certificate. So I know that she existed because I found a photo of... Her, this marriage certificate that is in a museum. And I was like, oh, I feel so special because I found something. And then I found Volker Schroeder stuff. I was like, oh, there's someone who actually does this as basically his whole existence and they're the experts. But I also <laughs> we, found something. We on this podcast give you credit for that find. 100%. Thank you. Yeah. So I was like, okay. <laughs> but because I found that marriage document, I was able to – because I, I found her name. Mm-hmm. So then I could get her full name and I was able to – and her mar- – and her – everything else was just Ancestry.com. It was just people trying to, like, find their th- – those were the only other websites. I found mentions in an Encyclopedia.com article and one other thing of – or one other website about Charles Perrault. And then it was just Volker Schroeder and this one marriage doctor. Those moments when you find the phrase you need to Google – you're hunting for something you're hunting for something you can't find it and then someone gives you the words you need to search and suddenly you're off Mm -hmm. to the races yeah even with that i still only found the one website it's wild i i just 
history and her father just did that woman so dirty. And I, I, I just wanted to talk about her because I think, I think it's such a shame that mm-hmm. we, we just don't talk about her at all. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. I think we did part one. <laughs> part one. You thought you were only getting one Kaylee Bray episode and then Sherlock Holmes over here provided. <laughs> she came in. And she came in with two spicy, delicious episodes. I couldn't stop. There were too many things that were very interesting. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited. I'm just I'm just so tickled that I'm surrounded by so many people that are like, <gasps> stories, mythology. <laughs> yeah, we're big old nerds up in this corner. Who, me, a nerd? Never. <laughs> me, a nerd? <laughs> Kaylee, as... You know, at the end of every episode, we ask each other to share a good thing. So, Kaylee, tell me something good. Okay. Well, um, today, uh, I I was able to give my mother over FaceTime her Mother's Day mm. gift. <laughs> and I had no idea what to get her. And so, like, I was texting my sister and then my sister texted my mom's best friend because none of us knew what to get this woman because she doesn't she doesn't really like stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I know some people they, like that. So, so she's, oh, get a um, – she wants a, a robot vacuum, like like a Roomba. <laughs> and I was like, mm-hmm. that's – okay. Is that a weird gift to get for your mother Mother's Day because it's about cleaning? I don't really know. I'm just going to get her this thing that I was told she's supposed to have. <laughs> um. And so I fi- she finally she's like, what is this huge box? I don't know what this is. And th- the noise that this woman made when she realized what it was. And her first thing is like, oh, what are we going to name it? Oh, my God, that is so precious. And if that doesn't tell you anything about me as a person, too, like, because <laughs> the, the little, like, Amazon message that you can put in a mm-hmm. gift card was just and this was before she'd seen it she just she opened it and said oh, what are we gonna name it i have tell me what you <gasps> name it as the as the mm-hmm. message the what gift. is the little cleaning droid's name she is still deciding because they just met you know i think mm-hmm. the brand is like d bot or something and she's like well that's pretty cute she's like well should i name it what's like a what's a like dungeons and dragons oh. name and i was like i don't know mom <laughs> just you know it should be like sneaky or cleany or something and i was like i don't <laughs> i don't know i'm naming my next character sneaky cleany like, i don't wait that's that's cinderella <laughs> how dare you all right so rowan's official character's name on damsels and dice is no longer cinderella it is sneaky cleany <laughs> it's true it is it is true I uh I tried to give Cinderella mending recently and I like oh, I couldn't do it. I was like this woman is not darning another gosh darn sock. She's just not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but what a what a what a flex that would have been if the other shoe that like dropped and broke. You could you just could have been like I know. Done. Oh, hang on, let me fix that. And Here's then I can the try problem. It. I keep picking spells for Cinderella that make me happy and make her the most useless character in a battle. And we are now fighting creatures in which members of my party are dealing hundreds of points of damage. And I'm over here like, I press to digitize it unmuddy. 
Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Miss Sneak Attack, you did plenty of damage. Thank you. So, Sneaky Clean, please tell your mom Sneaky Cleany is our humble recommendation. <laughs> Is our choice. Yeah. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, we'll put it in. I'll, I'll make a poll on Twitter or something. What is, what is mom, what does mom name the robot? Naming inanimate objects is important, I think. I think she's going to name it a droid name. She's like, oh, wait, something from Star Wars. And I'm like, okay, mom. Hmm. <laughs> All right. So now that we've heard from Kaylee, Rowan, tell me something good. So my good thing this week actually involves Kaylee. Uh, There is a bar that we really like that is taking such cool precautions. They're having everyone purchase these very affordable memberships, and then they're making sure that all of the members are vaccinated. They're checking Mm -hmm. the, the date and the time and our licenses and doing it so that Now that we're approved, you can go into the bar and know that every single person in there who's not wearing a mask is vaccinated. Ooh, I love that. And this bar has such vibes. It, (sighs) It's the witchiest of bars, and they've just, they've rebranded it as a members-only, vaccinated-only speakeasy, and it just appeals (sighs) to my sensibilities. It's so good, and it is... 100% spooky, and then everybody who works there is the friendliest, sweetest little bean. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's really nice to hang out there because I don't always want to drink. Sometimes I'm actually very happy to be the driver, and they have such a good collection of non-alcoholic drinks that are just fun to enjoy. Uh, So, Tracy, you would love it there. You would love it. Yeah, as someone who is spooky and is always a designated driver because I am constitutionally incapable of imbibing alcohol, I would love that. You would. And there is a bartender there. She is so wonderful. And you can tell her what you like and she will just concoct a drink for you. And if you ask her what's in it, she'll be like, I don't remember. I just (laughs) made it and I don't know. Um, And it's just a really fun place to be. And I am not always 100% enthusiastic about the world opening up, um, not because the world shouldn't open up, just because people, um, and this is like a little dose of like the best of the best people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love excited. that. That makes me happy too. Yeah. So, Trace, mm-hmm. tell me something good. Mine is not as cool as a witchy speakeasy, but for the first time since I was a little kid, I went rock climbing this past weekend uh, on Friday. So we're recording this on a Sunday, and I'm very sore. But it was really, really fun. Um, So I went with a couple of friends and then Jamie and Tim, my sister and her boyfriend, um, and they're belay certified, so they were able to belay me up the walls. Uh, It was such a shock the first wall I went up. How how different rock climbing is when you're a fearless little child who has to carry no body weight up a wall <laughs> to when you are a, an anxiety-ridden adult who is out of shape. But it was still it was so cool and I can't wait to go back and get better at it and learn more and, and get belay, auto belay and belay certified and possibly even bouldering certified with them. I didn't drag your butt to the rock climbing gym with me when we were younger. 
only when we were really young. Wow. Okay. So I lived at a rock climbing gym for a fair amount of my youth. Um, and it's so interesting hearing you talk about like belay certified and all of that because we used to, you know, you have to, the gym has to say like, you're okay to do this. Um, and my mentor was the gentleman who owned my local rock climbing gym. And we used to do this thing where we'd climb up really high over an overhang and then we'd, we'd let out some of the rope. Mm-hmm. And then we just drop. And the the distance that you dropped was so awesome. And it scared people who were on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. And you said that sentence and it scared me. I had the visceral reaction to just like, no, no. I mean, as a as a young girl, my favorite thing was when the young boys would want to do it and then they'd scream or cry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's so satisfying. So I next time I'm in town, Trace, I want you to take me because I want to hang with you all. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Sold. <laughs> and um, this is not a current good thing, but it's a future good thing. Um, Kaylee and I need to inform you, Tracy, that if you don't get your butt across the country, there will be an uprising. Um, That's fair. Yes. We Very valid, to. and uh, I started looking up flights, so we'll make it happen. Yes! <laughs> so I think in the meantime of you coming out here, that was our episode, our part one mm-hmm. on Bluebeard. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us, and remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.